What's up, Ego Hackers? Welcome to Season 18, Episode 25 for our season, Cognitive Mechanics. We're discussing uh, Cognitive Origins today. The Cognitive Origins that we're going to be discussing are Satisfaction and Reference, <coughs> which are the uh, origins that which uh, the heart temple or heart temple types tend to seek the most, uh, which is uh, important albeit uh, incredible. One second here. I am going to grab the link. I'm going to invite some more people uh, to join us into uh, tonight's uh, situation. All right. Uh, one second here. Trying to... There it is. All right. Awesome. Okay. So, uh, as usual, uh, we discuss and define what uh, cognitive origins actually are, just so that in case there are cherry pickers within the audience, wait, that's like almost everybody, uh, they will actually be able to follow along and get educated as much as the rest of us hardcore people who actually sit around and consume every ounce of content that is to be offered to the ego hacker community. So what are cognitive origins? Cognitive origins are the eight primary desires of humanity. They are the things that every human being is striving for, seeking out in life, and trying to gain for themselves on a regular basis. Our origin fuels everything we seek, and it is the hole that each of us is trying to fill. So like, I have a satisfaction-shaped hole in my soul, and as well as a reverence-shaped hole in my soul. And uh, when, when considering octogram, actually, uh, the size of the hole uh, is actually very much dependent upon uh, octogram. Uh, so we're going to be uh, discussing that heavily in the upcoming octogram episodes uh, as we get through season 18 together. So you want to uh, stay tuned. The cognitive mechanics is just going to keep building and building and building. And they have so much content planned for it, it's going to be there over uh, the next year. So yeah. Uh, Sam, there are no questions being answered here. All right, so uh, let's let's just look at uh, definitions. You know, from our trusty dictionary, the word cognitive, uh, which is uh, concerned with the act, process of knowing, perceiving, etc., or relating to the mental processes of perception, memory, judgment, and reasoning. Origin means something that from which everything arises or is derived. Source, fountainhead and the first stage of existence, or beginning, a point in a Cartesian coordinate system where the axes intersect, which are ultimately what the temple wheels are all about. They are a Cartesian coordinate system where the axes intersect. Those axes being your deadly sin, your living virtue, your aspiration pole, and your shadow pole. Each of those things intersect to the cognitive origin. All right? So... We could replace, so based on the uh, the aforementioned um, definitions above, we could replace the word cognitive with soul, uh, giving us the origin of our soul. A cognitive origin basically ends up being, you know, colloquially understood as that which our souls are made for. So, so what, so like, you know, it, 
the question ends up begs to be asked, you know, does the fact that we are seeking our origin mean we don't possess it by default? That's accurate. Yes, the answer is no, we don't we don't possess it. We don't possess it by default. However, when we do get our fill of our origin, we tend to share our origin with other people in certain ways, which is a fascinating concept if you think about it. So like, is the heart temple then naturally dissatisfied? Is it naturally unrevered? I would say so. And as much as does the soul temple entirely lack soul? I would say so. This is why, you know, the soul temple really struggles with being soulless. And this is why they love themselves drugs and uh, illicit sex. Uh, and then the heart temple uh, oftentimes is heartless and enjoys codependence and abuse. Great. <laughs> so uh, that that ultimately, uh, it, you know, it, uh, heartlessness is, is a huge problem uh, for the heart temple as much as soullessness is a huge problem for the soul temple and mindlessness for the mind temple. So yeah, that's... Uh, different ways of looking at it. But so let's let's actually look into what each of the individual cognitive origins like actually look like and what they mean and how they are utilized, etc. So yeah, uh what is satisfaction? So satisfaction is the first origin in the heart temple belonging to the ENTP and the ISFJ also known as the NV types. Satisfaction, aka fulfillment uh, are basically the same the same terms, and we use them interchangeably. To be satisfied is to find fulfillment, and fulfillment means to be filled up. The ENTP and ISFJ are seeking to be filled with not just desire and passion, but a deep sense of duty that creates meaning used to endure their crusade. Now, I will be talking about crusading or uh, some aspect of crusade uh, within uh, this lecture, but... Please understand, it's not necessarily the personal crusade of the ENTP or the ISFJ, because if they are fanatical, they can definitely take up and be fanatical for somebody else's crusade. So it doesn't necessarily have to be a crusade that belongs to them. It could also be a crusade that belongs to someone else that they end up crusading for. It's like zealotry. That's why like when you're around ISFJs and they're hardcore super-Christian people, those hardcore super-Christian people have this problem of... Uh, crusading and forcing their Christianity on other people. Well, guess what? The same thing applies to Islam. Basically, all those uh, Muslims uh, that Christians fear uh, on a consistent basis where it's like, hey, if you don't convert to Islam, we're going to kill you, which is also pretty lame as well. So that ends up, uh, that ends up being a problem. So understanding the technical meaning of satisfaction arises from examining the four poles of satisfaction, which are compassion, envy, malevolence, and fanaticism. And there are four tools in which envy types uh, utilize to achieve uh, satisfaction. So, you know, a lot, oftentimes people, like, have a really hard time, like, realizing that, yes, I am a unconscious-focused variant of an ENTP. Most people assume that I'm really, really compassionate, but that's not how compassion is uh, manifesting in someone who's unconscious focused. Take a subconscious focused uh, ENTP, and their level of compassion actually goes beyond uh, beyond their own level of suffering to a point. And it's like, you know, hey, it, it's kind of more wrapped up in the suffering of others and how much suffering they have, you know, and. Uh, their compassion is as high as the suffering of those around them, whereas, you know, for myself, it's very inward. My compassion is based on the level of suffering that I alone have suffered. 
So I get higher levels of compassion if I if I suffer more, whereas a subconscious-focused ENTP ends up having higher levels of compassion if there are those around them who are suffering more. And it has really not much to do with their own selves, which just kind of gives you a little taste of how the octogram works when it comes to establishing different variants of the 16 types. This is why we have people like Dave Powers out there claiming that there are 512 different subtypes of the 16 types, which I basically disagree with him on that point. I think it's 16 types multiplied by uh, two genders, right? Uh, multiplied by four uh, octogram subsets, which leaves a total of 128 different potential variants. I think he's deriving the 512 combinations based on his theory that a certain cognitive function could be focused on or at the top or at the top of the ego as, as that cognitive function is ultimately conscious. And when that happens, you, the way you're acting in that moment means that you are expressing a certain subtype of the available 512 types according to objective personality system. And uh, while that theory from OPS is very intriguing, I find that theory to be entirely inaccurate because that theory does not actually separate nature versus nurture very well whereas that is exactly what we're trying to accomplish when it comes to the octogram, as well as the octogram, which ultimately becomes the absolute neutral interpretation of what's actually happening with cognitive origins, the temple wheels, and uh, each of their uh, of the four poles of satisfaction, compassion, envy, malevolence, fanaticism, etc., or the four poles of the, any, any of the other temple wheels, right? So that can uh, be an issue. Did I bite my tongue? No, I'm uh, having a, an allergic reaction to something right now. So my nose is uh, it's extremely like swollen and plugged up. Not entirely sure how or why that happened, uh, which is pretty uh, pretty frustrating. So yeah, but that's why I kind of sound really off right now. Okay. Um, so yeah, all right. Uh, let's see here. So uh, let's let's get into like what these things actually mean. So compassion is the ability to see into pain and dissatisfaction in other people's lives. By seeing the emptiness that plagues others' lives and healing their wounds, the ENTP and ISFJ can be filled. So uh, that's like <clears throat> like I was just saying, you know, from from an octogram point of view, my level, my ability, my capability, my personal capability at being compassionate is based on how much suffering I have suffered. You know, whereas a, a, a subconscious-focused uh, ENTP, uh, their, uh, their compassion is actually based on whether or not, uh, you know, the suffering around them is larger than their own suffering, basically. And uh, that that's, that's pretty rough. I mean, you know, sometimes, like, you know, people could see that as, like, a very immature way of approaching uh, compassion, and I totally get that, but there's still a use for that. There's still use for that, because here's the thing, like, you can also say it's kind of entitled from my perspective, because I'm only willing to help somebody else if I have suffered a certain amount, but if I, if all of a sudden, like, I stop suffering, then all of a sudden I stop being compassionate, right? So then I could end up getting, like, the label of being entitled, and then, like, I'm not taking responsibility for being compassionate to other people. And it's kind of lame that as a UDUFENTP that my compassion, uh, my capability to be compassionate is based on whatever current level of suffering that I'm at within my life. 
if the suffering increases, then the compassion increases. If my suffering goes down, then my compassion goes down. It's like it's a really effed up way of thinking about it, you know, from a UDUF uh, ENTP perspective. But then conversely, SDSF ENTPs, the other atypical octocaram vari variant, uh, same with ISFJs, all of this applies to ISFJs as well, is that uh, they end up having a similar issue. And uh, But they're still just as judged. They're just as judged. Because from their perspective, it's like, oh, well, so you're only going to help someone if someone suffers more than you, right? So it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Like either side, I, I, it doesn't matter what side of the octogram you are. You're still going to get judged by people. You're still going to get shot on for whatever level of compassion, whatever level of living virtue you're actually utilizing. So it doesn't matter. And I have a feeling that other living virtues are judged the same way throughout all of the temple wheels, throughout all of the eight temple wheels. So just keep that in mind, like from an octogram standpoint, and I'm sprinkling a, a little bit of octogram into these lectures before we actually get super focused on it, but, uh, and, and do lectures dedicated to octogram related content, but it is, it is important to understand these. Um, so yeah, uh, but yeah, so, so let's look at uh, envy. So envy is the awareness, uh, oftentimes uh, projected, of the satisfaction in other people's lives. Envy serves as a constant reminder of the ENTP and ISFJ's own dissatisfaction. Envy is a reminder of the things that they believe will satisfy them if only they possess them. And again, envy is a very subjective thing because it's based on belief. It's not based on reality at all. It's all, it's, it's all a belief. It really is a projection onto other people. When I'm envious of other people, and, and don't forget, like remember what the, the, the definition of envy is compared to the definition of jealousy. Jealous people want what other people have. I want NI what other people have, SE, basically. Whereas, um, you know, uh, envy is more like I should have SI what other people want, NE. I should have what they want. I should have what they want. I should have what they want. That is envy. Jealousy is I want what others have, right? Uh, you know, um, here's another way of interpreting jealousy versus envy. So if I could remember the specific terms, hopefully I can. But jealousy is basically saying, hey, why do those people deserve that? Uh, or why don't I deserve what they have? Because I perform better than they do, right? And then the envy thing is like, hey, why do I not deserve what they have when I've worked harder than they have? That's the envy expression, okay? So... That is the stark difference between envy and jealousy, and it's really, really important that we all keep, uh, you know, keep that in mind and are able to move forward with that in mind. It's it's super, super important that you guys understand that, because every human being, you know, SE or any user, like falls under one of those two categories anyway. It doesn't matter if they're an envy type. It doesn't matter if they are a lust type, for example, between soul temple and heart temple. It's still a thing because don't forget, you still have greed. You still, have to, you still have greed to deal with from the expert sensors of the body temple. You still have greed. That's still a problem, right? As much as envy is still a problem, which is the heart temple's version of greed, or uh, lust, which would basically be the soul temples of greed, right? You know, like, it's still, it's still an issue. It's still very much an issue. And then you have, you know, have pride in there as well, which is a little bit different. And then there's malevolence, which is the most misunderstood part of uh, this particular temple wheel when it comes to the cognitive origin of uh, satisfaction. 
So malevolence achieves satisfaction through the ENTP and ISFJ inflicting the pain that they have experienced onto other people. When used compassionately, it is for the other people's benefit. Yes, I can be compassionate about malevolence. I could just be like, hey, I'm going to make you suffer in the same way that I have suffered so that you learn a lesson and you're going to be a better person for it. That's malevolence in a used in a living virtue kind of way. But then, you know, when used enviously, it's for the ENTPs and ISFJs' own benefit, where we're just deriving satisfaction out of just being pure spiteful. You can see this in the book Ender's Game by Orson Scott Card or the film of the similar name. Uh, Ender Wigan, who is an ENTP, he is very malevolent, constantly malevolent, and he suffered a lot, and he definitely inflicts that pain onto other people sometimes compassionately and also sometimes for his own benefit where he basically almost kills a fellow student at a um, at the school in a, in a fight basically using all of his malevolence so while malevolence as a term is a very negative uh, connotation of a term within this temple wheel it definitely is the proper term to be used so it's a you know it's a it's a super important uh, perspective and then fanaticism. Uh, fanaticism satisfies the ENTP and ISFJ by possessing them with radical fanatic loyalty for their personal crusade or the crusade of somebody else, whether it be a set of beliefs, mission, or way of life, right? Fanaticism can extend to material things, a certain book, movie, or experience. Through fanaticism, also the body temple pole, ENTPs and ISFJs can look like their gluttony, crusader counterparts. So for example, Let's use, let's use my life as an example. So I, fanaticism is not my main uh, preferred pole. It's the aspiration pole uh, of uh, this temple wheel, the temple wheel of satisfaction. Uh, I'm closer to my shadow pole of malevolence, but the aspiration pole is fanaticism. And if I was an aspiration, and, and if I was developed for fanaticism, I would be a subconscious developed ENTP type instead of a malevolent developed ENTP variant. But if I was a fanatic, I'd be pushing my belief system on other people consistently. See, like, and, and that's the one thing. You can look at an ENTP and ISFJ. They push their belief system on other people. They enforce their belief system on other people, especially those close to them, like especially their families or anyone that they're in a, a sexual relationship with. They will push it on them. Whereas a malevolent ENTP has a perspective of, eh, let the chips fall where they may. You don't have to be a Christian. You don't have to be a Muslim. You don't have to be any of these things. You could just do whatever you want. That's fine. But the fanaticism, however, in order to actually be allowed to be a person closer to them, those other people have to adopt the same belief system, mission, or way of life of the crusade that the ENTP or the ISFJ is actually current, currently on. And that, uh, that can be a huge issue. Uh, my mother, she is extremely fanatical. Extremely fanatical. And this is one of the reasons why her and I butt heads so much because I never join her on her crusades, on her Christian crusades, or her family crusades of looking good. I never join her on that. Same thing also goes uh, with my mother-in-law, who's even more fanatical. Uh, she's also an ISFJ. And uh, one time, uh, because I wasn't uh, devoted to her crusade of making herself look very good in front of the rest of her family, because it was the first time in her life that she actually had a grandchild and there was a baby shower for it and she was putting on, and she made the baby shower all about her, which kind of sucks. Uh, it definitely uh, sucked for me. It definitely sucked for Railgun. Uh, it sucked. And... Uh, 
I remember I remember telling the story once to this audience about how she yelled at me so hard, even though I was setting up the camera equipment and, and everything was starting on time. And she was accusing me of making her look bad and all this. And I'm like, oh, my God, you are literally an ISFJ, very fanatical, and your poor underdeveloped, very underdeveloped ESFP unconscious is basically being naive right now and freaking out when you need to realize nobody cares. No one actually cares. But that's the thing about fanaticism. It is blind. Fanaticism is like having blind faith. That's why it's radical, fanatic loyalty for a personal crusade or someone else's crusade. Again, whether it be a set of beliefs or a mission or a way of life. Very fanatical. So fanaticism can extend to material things as well, a certain book, movie, or experience. It can also extend to Amway or any other pyramid scheme out there. Watch out for ENTPs and ISFJs because they hella get involved in that stuff in as much as Soul Temple uh, philosophers do as well. Uh, Soul Temple and Heart Temple SI users are extremely weak to uh, pyramid schemes. So watch out. Protect yourselves and each other uh, from that kind of influence. Watch out. So yeah, like, uh, you know, so there's always some good things and some bad things. Uh, I would like to make a note on Envy real quick is that Envy, while it's usually seen as a very negative thing, it can be a very positive thing. I actually had a coaching session with an ENTP woman earlier this week, and uh, we were discussing some things. And she asked me, like, hey, you know, I utilize Envy in such a way, just like you do, Chase, uh, in terms of, you know, being able to use it as a, as a source for uh, motivation and a source for me to keep going and having self-discipline and self-control to keep going and working hard so I can get what I want, so I can get satisfaction in my life. So she asked me for a bunch of strategies as to where she could go in order to be able to keep the fire of envy burning within her soul so that she can keep her motivation, right? Which is, sounds perfectly reasonable given that introvert intuition is the macro cognitive origin, uh, cognitive function, uh, the origin function uh, of um, the cognitive origin function of the heart temple, and it is the essence of fire, right? It is the essence of fire. And uh, she's utilizing envy to keep that fire lit on her ass so that she can stay motivated. So like that's that's a really big deal. That's a that's a big thing. And uh, so I gave her some tips on that. You know, okay, you can go to these places because she made the argument. It's like, hey, you know, I need to be around successful people. I need to be around healthy people so that I can stay motivated. And I'm like, yeah, I totally understand that. One of the reasons why I film in downtown in the city, because it allows me to keep my envy up so I can stay motivated to keep producing content for y'all. That's why I do it, you know? So, so yeah, uh, again, positive and negatives on all of these things. Most people think malevolence is just negative. No, it's not. Some people think fanaticism is just positive. No, it's not. Some people think compassion is positive and only positive. No, it's not. And some people think envy is only negative. No, it's not. So just... Keep that in mind. Let's discuss reverence for a little bit here. So reverence is the second cognitive origin of the heart temple, belonging uh, to the ESFP and INTJ. The origin of reverence pushes the ESFP and INTJ to cultivate deep respect and admiration from and for others. Yeah, except it also blinds them from being able to like be obedient and show respect and submission to others at the same time, which we'll talk about in a minute. So you have modesty, which is the living virtue. You have vainglory as the deadly sin. You have desecration as the um, 
shadow pole and egotism as the aspiration pole. Okay, so modesty, the living virtue, achieves reverence by not forcing others to respect them. Modesty allows the ESFP and INTJ to share the spotlight with others. It also permits this dyad to reveal its imperfections. Whoever, in which quote, whoever humbles himself will be exalted. That's from the Bible. Furthermore, it is the embrace of their flaws that makes this dyad more beautiful. So, I know, uh, I know an INTJ woman, uh, and uh, this INTJ woman is probably one of maybe three in my life that I actually like had a crush on, like like only three times like did that ever happen um you know and and she's very modest she's extremely modest and modest uh modest INTJs especially women are extremely rare uh like um i would say i would say like vainglorious um well that's not true i, I know a bunch of modest uh, uh INTJ men as well i actually met one the other day his name's Daniel fantastic fellow uh very brilliant he's also a writer uh writes for uh crypto a cryptocurrency blog and uh, helps educate people uh, on what cryptocurrencies are. He represents a few currencies. They pay him to, you know, turn what the engineers are saying into regular common folk speak so that they can actually understand that. And he's a very modest fellow. He's not trying to uh, compete or uh, try to hog the spotlight. And he's very honest and upfront about his imperfections. And, you know, that's that's really important for me, like when it comes to INTJ women who are really, you know, upfront about their imperfections and not trying to hide their imperfections and willing to um, expose their imperfections because the imperfections themselves are actually what makes them beautiful to me. It's not their perfections. And uh, this is something actually that uh, Railgun had to contend with uh, recently because her and I... Um, I came home, I was having a really, really bad day, and I just wanted to uh, indulge myself uh, by uh, by inflicting pain on myself, basically. So uh, to do this, I watched uh, an old movie, uh, which is an extremely painful experience every time I watch it, uh, and it's called uh, A Walk to Remember, and it basically is my little memento as well as my memorial. Um, I probably watched it once a year, once every two years, something like that, just to inflict pain on myself and for no other reason. But it's also like a memorial. It's a memorial to uh, my uh, now very long past, um, uh, you know, it's my first love. You know, she died of brain cancer. And uh, A Walk to Remember is basically literally identical to my experience in high school, literally identical. Um, like that entire story, that was me. You know, the main character, Landon, he's an ENTP. Uh, the other character, Jamie, uh, she's an ISFP. Uh, within the context of the story, it is a natural pair. Uh, but imagine an INTJ woman uh, being put into the uh, position of Jamie Sullivan in that film. And uh, that's literally my entire high school story. And she did die of cancer, um, which is pretty, uh, which is pretty sad. Uh, and you know what? She never actually shared her imperfections with me. She was actually a vainglorious INTJ. She always hid. She always hid her imperfections. She really cared about her perfections, and uh, she never. She never revealed it. She never revealed her secret that she was dying of cancer. 
And because of that secret, she actually ended up breaking up with me because she was afraid that if she did, did tell me, I would have given up my, uh, my college and university and all that bullshit, the worst decision of my life, uh, and, and it would have stayed. Yeah, and she's, she's absolutely right. I would have stayed. I would have. And I would have gotten a job, and I worked, would have worked really, really hard to try to reverse her condition. And honestly, I think I would have succeeded, especially with what I know now about health and fitness. I think I would have succeeded. But uh, no, I had that opportunity taken away from me because she was being vainglorious and uh, she did not reveal her imperfections. And what she doesn't realize, because I could, I could tell so, so much that she's so desperately afraid of me rejecting her and so worried that I wouldn't want her anymore. So she did the classic extroverted sensing thing of, oh, I'm going to reject you before you reject me. Er. And it's like, yeah, you're like really dumb. Like all you SE users that think that that's a thing, y'all are dumb. And... If people are really going to treat you like that anyway, like they wouldn't be in your life anyway, so wouldn't it be better for those people to reject you and suffer rejection? Because like let's think about it. You you extroverted sensors, y'all y'all are so entitled. You don't even know how entitled y'all y'all are when it comes to rejection. Who fucking cares if someone rejects you? I don't like seriously, you know, my SE demon doesn't give a flying fuck about the fact that you guys are that you guys get rejected or you feel the pain of rejection or that you're afraid of rejection. I really don't give a damn. Do you know why I don't give a damn? Because I have to deal with something worse and it's called dejection. Way worse, okay? And you expert sensors, "Oh, he rejected me." Or, "Oh, she rejected me." Yeah, and you feel that pain and then it goes just as quickly as it came. Congratulations. Congratulations. But then me, I'm dejected. I've been dejected like the majority of my life. I only stopped being dejected up until recently. Within what? The last three years? The last three years, I'm not being dejected anymore? You see what I'm saying? So what is the difference between a reject and a deject? Okay? A reject, yeah, they get rejected, but the pain hits them and then it goes away. And you SE users have the benefit of forgetting and forgetting your pain. Congratulations. Isn't that amazing? But dejection, the way that it works, is that as an SI user, our expert intuition is aware of how choosable we are. We are aware of how desirable we are. We are aware, like, and, and if we're not even, we're not even a choice, if we're not even a consideration, okay, like, we're completely invisible to people when we're not even a choice, when we're not even a consideration, we're not even attractive or desirable enough that no one even considers us, okay? That's dejection, and that rots in your soul for decades, Okay? That's what happens. Like, that's, that's real. That's reality, okay? But all you SE users, you pussy-ass SE users whining about rejection, get over yourselves. It's not that bad. It's really not that bad. So I don't even want to hear about your little fear of rejection bullshit anymore. I'm tired of it. Like, I'm so tired of it. There's no point. There's, there's absolutely no point. Like, get, get off your high-ass horses. Stop whining and complaining. Go out there. Show your NI to people. If they reject you, be grateful because at least you don't have to deal with dejection, something that envy types have to deal with, you know, something that uh, uh, wrath types have to deal with. Think about it, okay? Like, so, so, so get over yourselves. Seriously, get over yourselves. I don't, I don't even care if you're a Templar. Get over it. Like, I don't want to hear it. You know, stop whining. Like, I'm so, like, just, just shut up about it. Like, shut up about your little rejection bullshit. Because at least you don't have to deal with dejection. 
And, you know, some of you SE users probably do. Like, if you're an SE user and then you find out, like, all of a sudden you're, like, super mega fat, like, or you're really, really uh, disobedient, or you're, you're just, like, incapable of showing respect to somebody, I, I don't know, or, or even love for whatever because of how abused you've been in your life, okay, maybe then you can start feeling both rejection and dejection simultaneously. Oh, wait, that was my experience. Yeah. Okay, so, again, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. Like, seriously, grow up. Like, I already know the burden of my expert sensing team, which means I have to perform better. And performance is how slowly over time I'm going to be curing my dejection or my feelings of dejection that I carry with me every single day of my life. That's just how that works. You know, so, like, it's it's a serious problem. That is a problem. And, like, as much as US users complain about rejection, you don't even realize the pain that the SI users have to deal with. You don't even get, you don't even understand. You couldn't even fathom it. You couldn't. And you all are so vocal about rejection, and you have no clue, no clue how all of us SI users suffer in silence. You have no clue. You couldn't even handle it. Not for a day. I don't think so. So vainglory. Vainglory achieves reverence by actively searching for regard from others and respect from others. They're like respect vampires. Vain ESFPs and INTJs demand recognition simply for the fact of their existence. Just because they breathe... People have to respect them. Just because I'm human, you have to respect me. Okay, congratulations, Vainglorious types. Great. That's amazing. You know, and, and the thing is, is that these people, they rack up more achievements. They rack up, um, and, and you know, even shallow achievements, like owning a Bugatti or whatever. And they actually end up having the expectation that other people give them regard and other people give them respect. Which is bullshit. It's complete bullshit. That's not going to work. It's not going to work at all. Okay. Like, that's, that's really not how that is. Although, vainglory can be a very powerful motivator. It can be a huge motivator for ESFPs and INTJs to try to win at life. Very powerful motivator. It helps them keep their motivation to achieve going. So I have to give respect to vainglory. I really, really do, because I totally understand what that is. But at the end of the day, I'd rather have the modesty because at least, at least you know, modesty among women, because modesty is actually a proof of humility to a point from a living virtue standpoint. Vainglory, however, is pretty masculine. It's all about this peacockery bullshit, you know. It's pretty masculine. I don't want that masculine deadly sin, you know, to be like at the forefront of, you know, an ESFP or an INTJ woman in my life. Absolutely not, you know, just from the perspective of sexual relationships, you know. Modesty is definitely my preference. Absolutely. Although modesty can be taken to extremes. And it's kind of really weird when you're with an INTJ or an ESFP and they're extremely self-deprecating, uh, not just with their attitude, but also with like their, their, their dress as well. And uh, just even like, even like ignoring themselves to that point where they take it way too far. They can take it to an extreme. So obviously, you know, you got to do things in moderation, but you know, like I, I do have, I still have a preference for modesty, but that's not to say that vainglory doesn't have its place. And there have been times in my life where I do appreciate vainglory from ESFPs and INTJs because they can be a wonder to watch with how they're able to execute things and achieve things throughout their life. I have to give that to them. I have to. Then there's desecration, the shadow pole. Desecration, yes. And uh, desecration, uh, which are basically the UD, uh, the UD ESFP and INTJs is desecration. So desecration is defined by achieving reverence by committing irreverence to 
towards things others hold in high regard. By committing irreverent acts to slaughter their sacred cows, the INTJ and ESFP find reverence for themselves. Desecration is an exchange of respect. Desecration harnesses humiliation to teach lessons. So, for example, um, here's another way of looking at it. So if someone has been humiliated their life, their whole life, ESFEI teachers, they're someone who's used to being humiliated their whole life, they will go out of the way to humiliate others and bring other people down to their level. And they will only desecrate as much to like down to their level. Sometimes, and they're not really, if you notice how they are, like, because they still have FI, they're still FI users, they're still trying to be a good person with their desecration. When they desecrate somebody, they're really just bringing them to at their level. It's not really trying to desecrate them to get them beneath them, although it oftentimes get comes off that way to other people when they're desecrating. Desecration is basically attacking other people's egos to take them down a couple notches because their ego themselves is used to being taken down multiple notches on a consistent basis throughout their entire life. That's what desecration is uh, to a... Uh, to uh, an INTJ or an ESFP, okay? And then there's egotism, uh, which is the aspiration pole, which is definitely uh, my son uh, right now. He's an INTJ. He is an egotist. Egotism achieves reverence by constructing one's identity based on one's own achievements. Egotistical ESFPs and INTJs lead with their achievements, believing often falsely that others will think just as high of their achievements as they do which is my son, he's constantly trying to perform all the time, and he really expects us to clap for him when he does anything, including like going down a slide. Like, he gets really upset if we're not clapping or giving him some kind of, yay, attention, good job. You know, the, the, he is obsessed with getting those attaboys, and he wears them like a badge of honor. Any attaboy, he's all in. My son is an egotist. He's a aspiration poll uh, INTJ, so he is basically subconscious developed with his octogram currently, you know, with how he's uh, with how he's presenting right now. And he's also extremely vainglorious, so he is an SDSF INTJ octogram currently. It's, it's very fascinating to watch. But yeah, like, uh, and, you know, and, and back to vainglory versus modesty one more time, just remember, like, vainglory is all about uh, perfections. And uh, and they, again, they believe like, oh, I'm perfect because I exist. I'm perfect because I'm a human. I don't have to expose my imperfections to you. They don't wear their imperfections like a badge. They don't see their imperfections as a source of beauty or something that gives them flavor or something that gives them value. They don't see imperfection as a source of value, even though it actually truly is. Imperfection is a source of value. Because that's ultimately what, uh, you know, what garners uh, idealism, especially from masculine forces, ultimately. Uh, and that's why it's extremely hard uh, for vainglorious women, ESFP and INTJ women, to get over that. Um, because, like, for example, in order for them to get reverence, right, they need to be able to show respect, right? Because you can't gain respect without showing respect. You can't gain reverence without showing reverence. But how are you going to be able to do that unless you're able to submit? You have to learn how to submit. So that's why, like, in ESFP and INTJ women, for example, especially in Western society, oftentimes they're incapable of submitting. And because of that, they're incapable of showing reverence. And because of that, they never actually get reverence in their whole life. They never do. Because they are not submissive. And how do you prove as a woman that you're submissive? 
You prove that by being obedient. Good luck. Good luck. Because then they just assume that because they're in obedience, they look like they're a doormat. doesn't mean they actually are a doormat. They just look like it. And they care more about their reputation, their status, and, you know, as, uh, as I've said previously, it's all about saving face. This is why I maintain that if you're a woman uh, or if you're an ESFP and INTJ especially or any woman who cares more about saving face, uh, then you're emasculating. You're not a woman. You're, you're, you're not feminine. You're gross. So you got to watch out for that. Obedience proves submissiveness. And then because you are submissive, then you will know how to show reverence to others. And that is how you will be shown reverence, right? We'll talk a little bit more about why that is in a second. So the origins can be expressed internally and externally. So like from an introverted perspective as well as an extroverted perspective. So this is, there's an introverted expression and an extroverted expression of each of the wheels. Uh, you know, and this could be for satisfaction and reverence, uh, either of these wheels. And that goes the same for like the envy, uh, the malevolence, uh, the fanaticism, the compassion, as well as vainglory uh, versus modesty and uh, desecration uh, versus uh, egotism. There's introverted and external uh, and extroverted uh, expressions of each of these uh, poles within these two temple wheels for the heart temple. Okay, so uh, so for example. Um, Satisfaction is the ENTP and ISFJ's pursuit of self-fulfillment, which extends to helping others reach fulfillment as well. Whereas reverence seeks respect for oneself and for others who the ESFP and INTJ believe deserve it. And this is kind of like, you know, we talk about how wayfarers are like treasure seekers. And once they have their treasure, they try to figure out who they can share their treasure with. Reverence is one of the expressions of the ESFP and INTJ wayfarers and how they actually do that because they see deep respect as a form of treasure. And then they help those closest to them also reach a high level of deep respect. And they have to, because if they don't do that, guess what? They'll start losing respect because if they're hanging out with people who are beneath them, people who are not respectable, then they won't look respectable anymore. So the people that are closest to them, they have no choice but to uh, help other people become respectable and help other people become revered around them so that they stay revered, which is awesome, right? So that happens. The same thing goes with satisfaction. You know, if, if we're not helping other people being fulfilled around us, then we ourselves will not be fulfilled. So likewise, the poles can be expressed internally or externally. It's possible uh, compatible poles uh, seek each other. For example, desecration and malevolence are both shadow and soul temple poles of the heart temple. Is it possible that desecrating INTJs are seeking malevolent uh, ENTPs the most? The answer to that is absolutely yes. This also means that there are some social engineering and ego hacking opportunities here when using the octogram. But let's actually discuss for a second octogram compatibility. So uh, you have the eight sexual compatibilities, all right? This is just a very small thing. So you have the eight sexual compatibilities. I'm, even, I'm not even going to bother going to what saying what they are because everyone should already know what they are. So the eight sexual compatibilities, uh, uh, let's, let, let's look at the golden pair, just, just the golden pair, and maybe the natural pair too, but the golden pair. So if you're an atypical octogram, meaning you're UDUF, 
um, and you uh, what's the highest compatible octogram for you? Before I would have said SDSF, but I found out that's not actually the case. Um, actually, a fellow UDUF um, golden pair. So if you're an atypical uh, golden pair, uh, you want to make sure you have the same octogram because that way you're, no, you're not competing uh, for things that you're not competing for origins, right? Now, if you're just a typical optogram, then you're definitely going to want to have different ones, maybe oppositional or opposite uh, optogram. Uh, that way you are able to, uh, you're also still not competing uh, for different origins. Natural pair is a lot different. Natural pair, uh, exchange of cognate origins is way easier. Uh, so with natural pair, you want to have the opposite. So if you're an atypical, you want to have the opposite, whereas if you're typical, you kind of want to have the same. So it's, it's, it's very, very different as to how origins work. It's because in the golden pair, remember, highest highs, lowest lows. In a golden pair, it ends up becoming a serious uh, issue. Because highest highs, lowest lows, um, the golden pair ends up oftentimes competing for the same origins. And uh, if your octogram is kind of incompatible, like so for me, I'm a UDUF ENTP, which means... I still have my ego looking for satisfaction, so I'm one part satisfaction, but my unconscious and my superego are both looking for reference, okay? And then the uh, the third, uh, the, the final type, which is my subconscious, which is basically, since I'm UDUF, my subconscious is not used very much or, or it's extremely underdeveloped or very young in the head, basically. It's very, 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 very behind the rest of the size of my mind. And my unconscious and my superego, that's an INTJ and an ESFP, and they care about the uh, origin of reverence. So in my mind, I am seeking out two parts of reverence to one part satisfaction for me, which is why uh, my mother to this day complains about how I absolutely cannot handle being disrespected to the point where I get violent when I'm being disrespected. So she hates that about me, and that's because my mind is seeking two parts of reverence instead of one part satisfaction. So if I was in a golden pair with an INTJ, she would have to be UDUF as well uh, because she's seeking two parts of satisfaction and only one part of reverence. So as a result of that, our octograms are not in competition for uh, those things within the context of our relationship. That being said, still have to be aware of the concept of paradigm shift. Paradigm shift is where the focus part, the F part of your octogram can shift on an instant. Even getting something like a new job can create a paradigm shift. Getting into a new relationship, is a new, it could be a paradigm shift. And you can actually watch your focus actually change and change on a dime. I thought that it would take a lot longer for focus to happen, to change, but really focus changes based on life circumstances. So while I'm in, I am a UDUF ENTP, and have been for a while, at least have been at, at a minimum, have been uh, as long as um, going back as October 14th, uh, 2021, basically, which is the first day of my midlife crisis. Um, that particular day, that Saturday, um, which I should probably verify if that was actually the Saturday then, uh, October. Oh, excuse me. It was October 16th. 2021. That was the first day of my midlife crisis. So at least since October 16th, uh, 2021, I have been UDUF. I suspect I would have been there earlier, but that's when I started like really keeping track uh, of this sort of thing. But let's say something else happens in my life. It's possible I could be UDSF. It is possible. It's possible I could change. And even getting into a new relationship 
would potentially do that, a new job, moving to a new place, uh, learning a new language, being a new country. Those types of paradigm shifts throughout life can change focus. Hell, even midlife crisis or quarter-life crisis or, or three-quarter-life crisis or final-life crisis could all do those things. That is the thing. So just remember, like, each of the eight different sexual compatibilities has its own preference in terms of what defines octogram compatibility, but the principle basically is they do not want to compete with each other for the same origins, okay? That's the whole point, all right? So uh, to wrap it up here, um, well, not really wrapping it up, but again, remember the golden rule. Uh, so in everything, do unto others what you would have them do unto you. Uh, also, this is where like we come into the law of reciprocity, which is give and it shall be given to you, right? So in order for us to achieve our cognitive origins, we have to ultimately give them to others. You know, if if I am an ESFP or an INTJ and I want reverence, I have to show reverence. I have to show respect in order to gain respect. If I, as an ENTP or an ISFJ, want satisfaction, I need to help other people find fulfillment in their lives so that I too can be filled. That's literally how it works, okay? So uh, ENTPs and ISFJs should consider ways they can help satisfy others and help others find their own purpose and path in life. Likewise, ESFPs and INTJs should give respect to the types of things and people that they want to be respected by. While we seek to have each of our origins filled, there are also the greatest gifts we can give to others. No one can make someone feel as respected as an INTJ or an ESFP. That's a fact. And no one can help you achieve fulfillment more than an ENTP and an ISFJ. Also a fact. And then let's 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 end let's end this uh, lecture with a final uh, point about uh, the heart temple itself. Don't forget the origin of um, the cognitive function origin of the heart temple, which is introverted intuition, also known as the origin of passion. Everything within the heart temple remains subservient to the macro origin of passion, or NI. It is vital to remember that passion is not just uncontrolled desire or being wanty, but it is finding a deep sense of meaning, even to the point of suffering for what one loves. For example, compassion comes from two Latin words that translate to, to suffer with, okay? If reverence and satisfaction are in a yin and yang equilibrium, Reverence is the orderly, masculine yang, and satisfaction is the chaotic and dynamic yin. Together, the pursuit of satisfaction and reverence create passion. The ENTP and ISFJ will only be satisfied when they gain respect, and the INTJs and ESFPs will find respect when they achieve satisfaction or fulfillment. The push and pull of respect and satisfaction play out endlessly within this temple. It's like uh, an amazing uh, dance. They're like in a consistent dance, and they have to be in sync. And that's why I brought up octogram compatibilities in terms of sexual relationships to show you how people can continue to be in and out of sync, depending on even their human nurture and not just their human nature. Human nature is one part of the equation. Human nurture is the rest of the equation and how that nurture actually impacts nature. That's where octogram comes in, and that's why it's ultimately important, all right? So, yeah. Um, all right, cool. Um, that is it uh, for this episode. This is Season 18, Episode 25, The Cognitive Origins of the Heart Temple. Thank you all for watching and listening, and I'll see you guys on the next episode where we will be discussing the Mind Temple in Episode 26. Have a good night, folks. See you then.